We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 331. Our guest today has really found herself in the equestrian world, but outside of the riding world. She has created a business for herself that I highly admire. She has an incredible ceramics business with fine art pieces that literally blow me away every time they pop up on my newsfeed on Instagram. I'm obsessed with them and I'm already in the works with getting one of her pieces custom made for my new home. So I wanted to have her on and hear a little bit about her story and how she got to where she is today and how her riding background made her really create her new business with her love for horses in mind. So without further ado, please welcome our guest today, Emma Tate. Hi, Emma. Hi, Bethany. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I'm so excited to hear a little bit about your life. How did you first get started in the horse world? Well, both of my parents were affiliated with horses, so I was born into it, really. Uh, My dad is a blacksmith, and my mom, um, she rides and trains in the dressage world. So I, I really just grew up around, you know, them and their passion. And we had um, one of the main farms that that I just will always remember. My life is down the road from us. And that's where I spent a lot of my time just around around horses because of my parents. And uh, yeah, so luckily, it it was lucky, really. (laughs) Yeah, I have to ask, being the daughter of a blacksmith, like, yeah. do you have any farrier skills? Like, can you tack a shoe back on? Like, Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I wish I could say yes to this. <laughs> um, you know, he used to teach some classes as well. And his students would come to the barn. And I was always the person to, you know, ride the horses after they did their class so they could kind of see see the effects of their work. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I um, was able to to get a little bit of technique here and there, but I don't right. think I've ever trust myself to put a, <laughs> one I know. of the shoes on it's, it's one of those things where I feel like it's just this like mystery box if you, as, unless you are a farrier, but oh my gosh, I can't even tell you how many times I think in my head, like, you know, if the fairy was just out and then my horse lost a shoe in the paddock and I'm like, gosh, if I could just know Definitely. how to put a shoe back on, I Absolutely. would save so much stress, but I guess catch 22 because once the rest of the barn knew that I would know how to do that skill, that'd probably be all I'd be doing. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, there's the reason why they're talented at that and they're asked exactly. to do it. Exactly. You know, it's definitely, we relied on him a lot. And I think because I was like, oh, you know, my dad is doing that portion of, we kind of, as I began riding more and my, we were this family unit, but because he was the one where we relied on keeping our horses you know, going, I never thought, oh, maybe I should learn. To do this. Yeah, so, yeah. So it's relying on him, but to, to keep everybody, yeah, to keep all the horses. Out, Definitely. So. <laughs> but I'm sure if anything, it was, you know, you really were able to realize the importance of how, oh, how feet and the, and the correct angles and the correct yeah. support are so important for the soundness of the horse. 100%, especially because I was riding a horse that 
he went best if he was shod where he his feet actually had a little bit of an angle out it, mm. like that was where his leg position was the straightest so you know you need somebody that really can has a good eye for that kind of thing wow definitely yeah. um well you spent some of the early part of your riding career um pretty competitive in some of the top competitions here in the u.s um tell me yeah. a little bit about some of your accomplishments and highlights from that time um, so yeah, I was basically, my parents had gotten a horse at a young age. Um, he was the Dutch warm blood. I was very young at that time too, but they had just put in this investment into this one horse and he turned out to be just such, you know, a once in a lifetime horse for sure. And he, they, they trained him up to a certain level until, um, it came to the point where I was, I did pony club. I had, you know, a few ponies that I leased. I was, starting to ride more dressage than, than jumping and getting to a point where I was enjoying it and doing quite well with the horses that I had. And we made the decision to, for me to continue on Figaro, this horse that, that my parents had trained. And I was able to um, just start doing more of the bigger junior championships uh, uh, competitions. And we made it to the championships and then the junior team and then I rode for the Young Riders team as well. Um, and, you know, it just, it was kind of, like I said before, it really was based on that family unit where we all, you know, came to the table with a different talent. I rode, my mom trained among among some other people that we also trained with. And my dad kept Figaro sound. So we were able as a unit to kind of succeed in that way. And that's really how I how I became competitive in the dressage world. And we were, I think, maybe the most memorable place as much as uh, the junior championships. The first one I was in was held at Devon. And I mean, I think a lot of the equestrians out there just know that special field that Devon has. And it was the show I'll just always remember. We ended up doing really well. But I think it was it came down to just the fact that I was just so happy and and proud to be there. And so um, it just will always reflect the way I think Oh, if I. I don't think I could get back into riding yeah. if, if I knew, you know, I, I just would want to do it seriously for that feeling, that passionate feeling of thinking, oh, we made it to this one show. That's always been a dream of mine. And, you know, if you don't want to like lower your standards, basically, <laughs> things like that is what I would always want to go for. So it's just memorable and stuck out in my mind. That was probably the show yeah. that lingers the most. But we also did a few of London Gray, um, London Gray's young uh, youth championships and those were really nice too just to really get the idea of what it's you know who's coming up in the horse world and um it, yeah that was also those were really nice shows as well yeah definitely um at some point you decided to make a very big move to further your training in dressage so what prompted you to move to the Netherlands yeah so um you know it got to a point where I don't, I think maybe quite a few young riders get to this point where they think, okay, I'm either going to continue training or I'm going to go to school to the university or do both of a lot. But, you know, you kind of have to make the decision. Um, so I ended up going to university and struggling a little bit, you know, without the horses, because that was just such a big part of my identity. And finally uh, came to a point where I studied abroad and then came back to the arts a little bit. And I, that's where I, also started in ceramic but after school I still was like oh well I'm, I'm good at riding and I would like to um, continue to see where I can take it 
And I, I'm not sure if it was the best decision, if it was more me just being nervous about trying out something else to, you know, as a career path. But sure. um, after school, I just thought, you know, if I get the opportunity, I felt as though Europe was the best place to go or maybe the dream place to go. I think a lot of a lot of equestrians want the experience of going to Europe to ride. And so the opportunity presented itself after school. I was riding a young horse for a woman in Rochester, New York, and, and a friend. And she uh, reached out. She had a friend in the Netherlands looking for a working student. And I, you know, was just at the right point in my life where I could up and go. And I was really ready for something like that. And so within, I think, a month, I just said, you know, she's ready for somebody to go help her with her horses. And I went right over and, and went in the thought process that I would be there for about six months. And I just moved back. It was about 10 years later. <laughs> I just moved back to New York. So Wow. <laughs> with a lot that happened in between, not only yeah. riding, but yeah, it was, um, I was able to go ride there and uh, I, I we ended up actually um, buying a young horse there and I was kind of on the track, on this track that I thought I wanted, um, wow. which, yeah, comes around to a whole new idea, I suppose, that uh, it took a step back eventually, but it was yeah. an amazing experience for the year I was there. Definitely. So obviously you said you kind of uh, since, you know, stepped away from the the level of riding that you were doing to pursue a career in your art. So yeah. what would you say may helped you make that decision to pivot still within the horse world, but in a different way? Yeah, well, it didn't happen as straightforward as that I would say like yeah I ended up knowing that the situation I was had my young horse um was managing this this farm um also riding a lot of other young horses and as much as I was getting a really cool experience I just started getting this feeling where I was like this doesn't really feel right I'm not my happiest here or in my riding and so I decided to just take a step back and I wasn't ready to leave the Netherlands because I was determined to feel, uh, you know, leave as though I had kind of conquered a little bit more. <laughs> and um, so I moved to Amsterdam after meeting my now husband. He he definitely helped the decision um, for me not to leave the country. But I I just needed to step back. And it actually took me a few months to really, you know, find my identity again in something else and think, okay, I'm... I'm good at other things. And, you know, I had a lot of guilt leaving the horse world in the riding sense because I just wasn't sure if I was leaving because, you know, I was scared to keep going or I should have stuck it out. I had, I kind of went back and forth with fighting with myself on that, but I missed the horses a lot too. So, you know, they, they're such a therapeutic part of your life when they're in your life. So mm -hmm. I just, felt as though, okay, whatever I do has to do with horses, but I have to figure out, formulate a new way to work with them when I can't own one or ride regularly. Because um, at the same time, I really love the buzz of the city and the, you know, art world there. And also having a little bit more connection to the world as I was living in quite a small town and realized that I needed some more stimulation outside of the horses and people to talk to. And um, so... I started working with Clay again, and it was actually somebody in the studio space that I was working in just saying, well, you, you should make horses. 
you know, it seems to be all you talk about. <laughs> so, um, so honestly, she really started, it was like, you're right, I should make courses. And then there, all of a sudden, I just started making courses. And it wow. just connected where I thought, yeah, of course, I, why wouldn't I just make courses? And it connected me then with the world again. Yeah. And I started doing some exhibitions at the uh, major shows over there. And that, you know, it kept me in the horse world, talking to horse people and seeing a whole different side, side of the profession, really. And mm-hmm. Uh, I just kind of fell in love with that side where I could, you know, there was not as much responsibility in the sense that I didn't have a horse to take care of or mm-hmm. I wasn't expected to ride a certain way or um, I could just create but still have the horse shape in my life. So that, um, you know, it took a little time to get there, but I now I'm at a point where eventually I want to bring in the riding again. But <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think you've, I mean, managed to really I mean kind of like anyone in your shoes would go through a bit of an identity crisis even though you still ended up in the horse world um what would you say your relationship to the equestrian world is like now um it's interesting definitely taking a step back and looking it back into it I can see there's just so many more platforms as like you know you I think when you're in the competing world it's a really closed world you know you're it's such an intense it's just narrow because you have not in a not I would say in a bad way it's more narrow because you just you have a goal and you want to attain that goal and that's you know doing well at shows and and um you know training to the best of your ability and then yeah, you're, you're working with trainers, you're working with the other people that you're showing against. And it's really, I, I just found it more of a closed world. And now I guess I just see, wow, there's horse people everywhere. And, you, you know, even if you just have a horse in your backyard, or you rode a horse when you grew up, or, and you know, anytime I mention, oh, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, but I specialize in horses. There's never, always someone has a horse story that was, mm-hmm. you know, about their life or someone they know. And I just think, wow, Horses are so just make such a they just have such a positive impact on people in so many different ways. And I think that's quite cool. Definitely. Do you ever wonder what a world would be like to have pets and not deal with the massive amounts of pet hair everywhere? If you're a pet owner, you know how frustrating it can be to clean up pet hair from your furniture, your carpet, your clothes, you name it. Well, Uproot Clean understands the struggle. They have these pet hair remover tools that help gently remove entangled pet hair from carpeted stairs, car mats, furniture, clothing, and even saddle pads. We tested Uproot Cleaner Pro on a variety of surfaces, including my favorite blanket at home, my couch, and definitely tried those saddle pads. We were so impressed with how well it removed pet hair from all of these surfaces, and it was so satisfying to use. The Uproot Cleaner Pro is a great tool for all pet owners. It's super affordable, easy to use, and it's really effective at removing pet hair from a number of places. So whether you have a dog or cat that sheds like crazy, I am thinking about those black yoga pants that just get covered in hair every time you're trying to leave the house and a lint roller just won't do, or us equestrians having horses, especially during shedding season, where literally you can use a saddle pad one time and then it is just coated in hair. 
Uproot Cleaner is the way for you. So visit their website at uprootclean.com. That's U-P-R-O-O-T-C-L-E-A-N.com for more information and to take a look at their awesome products. Not to mention it, it has always been such a big staple in the mainstream world, you know, when it comes to art and design and fashion that has always been such a strong pull. And so let's talk a little bit about your art, because I if I haven't told you this already, like your pieces are literally exactly my style in ceramic art form. I love everything that you come out with. And I know we've chatted a little bit, but I cannot wait to have one of your pieces in my new house because I think it'll literally go perfectly with the new house. That is Um, awesome. I'm so excited to to make something. Seriously. So tell me a little bit about, you know, from that day in the studio where you were kind of told by that person oh you should like do some horse stuff yeah um, how did you so go simple. yeah yeah how did you go from that point do you remember what your first horse piece was um and how has it kind of like evolved from there yes actually my first horse piece ended up so I ended up going to college for four years and then I studied abroad the last year and when uh, the last sorry my second to last semester so when I came back I needed one more class to um, be a full-time student to finish my degree. So I took this figure sculpture class after a friend recommended for me to take it. And I ended up loving it. My second sculpture, I made a life half of a life-size horse. Mm. So I kind of had this history with making horses. So for whatever reason, it didn't come as why it was such a shock for me that yeah, I it didn't click at that point. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But, um, you know, I just, I just wasn't sure. I was like, do people have or would people be interested in horses? I just had such a narrow, you know, idea of of what kind of equine art I could make and how, you know, how it would make people feel and how it would make me feel. And so once I got started, I actually um, had this, my first kind of style, I would make all of my work, but because I had, I was a little bit type A about it and wanted it to be a certain way in order to get away from that, I would slice it up <laughs> and then I would put it back together yeah. so that it had its kind of own, so I couldn't control it as much. And it felt really, it was a cool way of doing that because, you know, I could make things as, you know, for lack of a better word, perfect as I would like, but then it took on a life of its own with the second stage before I fired it by slicing it into pieces. So I played around with that. Um, and the first sculpture I made was kind of similar to, I was inspired by Nick Fidian Green, who he does these amazing, um, among other things, but the most, maybe one of his most well-known pieces is there's this head that kind of looks like it's grazing and rising out of the ground. And he has these enormous installations. One of them is in London. Anyways, they're just so amazing. <laughs> and so I did, I did something similar in like a sliced version and someone reached out to me and was like, oh, can I buy this? And I thought, you want to buy this? <laughs> like, oh, you know, it just takes you by surprise. I think the first time when you're making something for yourself, but someone else likes it too. And you think, oh, wow, okay, this is great. I'm getting this kind of feedback that um, other people would want this in their home. So that kind of started where I did a whole series and I, I named them after all my horses in my life. And that really was a nice reflection time of it, it kind of coincided with making my first sculptures and naming them and kind of characterizing them out of the ponies and all the horses that I grew up with. 
And I did this exhibition at um, the Indoor Brabant in Sertogenbosch in Netherlands, and it was the World Cup qualifier. So it was a really big show. A lot of people were able to go there. So that was a really great place just to kind of have a first showing and get my work out there for people to see in real life. And that um, really took a a big turn because a a lot of times I'm still quite new to exhibitions, but it seems like you don't get automatic um, success, but they're, they kind of, you know, they sit with people when people see your work and they're not going to immediately maybe reach out to you, but they'll remember you for when they need to. Definitely. And I was able to get um, some really awesome commissions out of that later, um, later on, which, which developed my work even more to starting to work on the wall. And then I made uh, a de trois, which was this large sculpture of three horses, dressage horses. Um, and that that you know that's what it was quite nice I never really made a body of work after that first one um because it just kind of led into commissions and that's kind of where at the time my 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 career kind of led is people luckily were asking for commissions which was quite cool because then you're collaborating in a way and then your work can take a turn into something that you maybe couldn't have done yourself so those were really great experiences and at the time I was pregnant with my son. So I actually installed that, like, I think it was three weeks before I gave birth. So it was oh like my, my first um, pregnancy project, if you will. Um, and then that kind of led to, I got my first studio space um, on my own. And that, you know, then once you have your own space and you feel very professional and you have all your tools and you just can continue making and exploring. And, you know, I really love the natural tones and the natural clay but then during this time um, mainly due to not being able to be in the studio as much um, you know some of my things dried a little bit too quickly or there was just I couldn't um, control the setting as much so I had to then sometimes put pieces together back after after they came out of the kiln or use different materials or use a different glaze or resin and I was able to really experiment with different finishes and different materials and then that's kind of the latest the the second time I was able to make more of a body of work came out quite gold and different with different colors and um, different materials because I worked with metal a little bit and it's funny because I don't really that doesn't really I I feel like I don't identify with that as much because it's not really my style but it reflected that time in my life when you know I was I was pregnant again with my second and then just going through that time of becoming a mother and really still passionate about my career and how I was going to make it work and how pieces weren't a waste of time. They were a time to explore. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think it, you know, it's developed in a way I could have never expected, <laughs> but you know, those are kind of the best ways sometimes is when it kind of takes on a life of its own and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people, who reach out to me for work are they I you know I'm so grateful to them because there's always some really personal and different ideas that everyone thus far has been really great about letting me put my personal touch on it but then you know they bring the ideas to the table as well so um, it just kind of helps me grow and do different things and really challenge myself and it's just yeah every time something new and who knows what's next? It's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When you aren't doing commissioned work, what does that look like now in the studio? Are you, I mean, I'm sure like essentially they're still 
one-of-a-kind pieces? Are you making multiples of a piece? How do you kind of like navigate that work that maybe you're, you'll have at events and things like that? Yeah, that's something I'm working with, working on, I should say. It's a process because I, because we just moved back to New York, I am now in set in motion, getting a new studio space. So, you know, now I have to really set up a space that can, can be equipped with the enough shelves enough you know more space now basically that can work with the pieces that I would like to do for myself and for potential exhibitions and for the commissioned work because right now I also these wall pieces have really developed into my main work Um, but with that said um, I just booked my first solo exhibition for next year and so you know I need I need to make time for it seems like a long way away a year but sometimes it takes a whole year to really mm-hmm. put your mind to something and make, you know, a solid, just put an extra, uh, yeah, a, a solid story together about a, a line of work. So right. I think that what's nice with ceramic and maybe with other materials, but I can't, I can only speak for ceramic is that just working with clay, there's the, the actual sculpting time actually is what takes the least amount of time. I think because I'm so used to the horse shape, I usually have an idea of how I want it to feel and, and look. So that time actually, you know, happens quite quickly, but then there's time, then you have to let the clay dry. And so there's times off from a piece. So like I'll make an, a sculpture once it's hollowed or even before that it needs sometimes it needs a few weeks even to just mm. sit. so during that time I start another commission I work on my own projects you know so there's definitely once I have that flow again in the studio I usually set up a commission and then in between each commission I either set up two at a time or I set up time for my own work so I'm hoping to get a more solid understanding of what that's like especially having two young kids at the same time you have to kind of figure out a new you know a new flow um and so hoping to have a home studio but also something nearby is is going to be doable as well so I think that's also something that a lot of people who haven't done anything with ceramics in the past um sometimes don't realize is that the sculptures have to be hollow to be able to finish out in the kiln yeah and there's different techniques like if you're building something 3D, um, you can coil build so that you can build up and it doesn't always have to be just complete solid clay. But on the wall, I, for me, I just like feeling the volume by, you know, I have armatures that take up some space too, but I just love building up and feeling the volume and the heaviness, you know, because that's horses too. So it feels right to really build the muscle, build everything. So I don't mind the hollowing process because it's, you know, I'm just used to it now, but um, I know a lot of people who who coil and that's also a really great technique that I probably should take into consideration. (laughs) Sometimes the hollowing process takes a whole week, but you know, it's, uh, you just have to go with what feels right at the time. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) What would you say is something that you are passionate about in the industry that you feel like people either don't talk a lot about or don't know enough about? I'm not sure if it's like maybe a specific uh, theme or I think what I struggled with was not, was being okay with not being good at it all or not having to do, you know, everything 
in the industry. Like, you know, you don't have to be good at riding young horses and training and or and riding the upper levels and teaching. You know, it's like I just I remember feeling an overwhelm. And as much as I really enjoyed some of those, I felt overwhelmed that I needed to be really good at all of them to make it in the horse world. And it just seems like, you know, pick one and, and, or two, or, you know, as many as you feel like you can, you can handle and are still happy and passionate about the sport. And, and, and that's okay. I can see, you know, I I feel as though I've, I felt it. And I have also heard from others where there's just some pressure to be, to be able to do all the things. Right. Definitely. (laughs) And I think, I think also like growing up in our era that it was really just seen as like, you are a professional in the industry if you're a top rider or a trainer. And there's like nothing else that was really showcased when in reality um, it's showcased a lot more because of things like social media. But I think that um, there are so obviously so many areas of the industry that you can be a professional in. And so um, I love talking with other people that are kind of like myself that you got a little bit creative and still are you know working in the industry as a professional like really honing in on the things that you are an expert in and um, then in the long run that really shows definitely and just staying flexible and you know you're still a horse person you know no matter what (laughs) just and you know as you grow as you get older as you you know have different things going on in your life it's okay to fluctuate where you how you bring horses into your life and it doesn't always need to be you know as as intense or as um as much as it was before or more you know just I think staying flexible and Definitely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me a little bit about your story. I think it is so amazing and full circle how you've been able to create this amazing business for yourself and something that is, you know, very unique and special for the industry um, that really still um, highlights our passion for horses, which is, you know, the reason why we all start out in this industry and sport from the beginning. So um, I appreciate everything you're doing. I'm so excited to talk more with you about my future piece and I wish you all the best. (laughs) Thank you so much. You too. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.